There's a lot of information. There's a lot to study. It's beautiful, and the picture is crazy. But when you look at the simplest elements of it, the gospel itself is very, very simple. We are in Romans chapter 4, and we are going to be in our series on Romans. And tonight, what I think the, the message really is, is just don't overcomplicate things, right? <clears throat> Anybody know someone who overcomplicates everything? You know, like you listen to the first 15 seconds of them talking, and then you just tune out because you know that everything else is just an overcomplication of what they had just said. You know what I'm talking about. You're probably married to that person. <laughs> I can say that because Juliet's not in the room. So I'll be in trouble tomorrow. But uh, this idea of not overcomplicating things, um, <clears throat> I'm gonna share a bit of something that I love. And uh, if this sounds pretentious to you, that's okay. Stub your nose at me, um, it's cool. I'm okay with being called names, and it does sound pretentious, and I realize that, and I'm sorry. But it's what I know, because before I fell in love with Jesus, I had this love for art and art history. And so one of the things that I learned as I was trying to become somewhat of an accomplished artist, um, and by accomplished, I mean I think I sold two pieces in my entire life, so hey, professional here. Um, <laughs> this uh, is what I learned, right? <clears throat> art we look at it and sometimes we see these beautiful paintings or drawings or sculptures and creations and we think gosh that is gorgeous i could never do that because we're looking at this thing that seems so perfect but the truth is when you really break it down art is just lines and primary colors and shading that's it it's just lines you got to put the lines in the right spot so one of the things i had learned as i was trying to become better at illustration was to break a picture up into blocks because you're just trying to put lines in the right space. So if you're not focusing on the picture as a whole and complicating the beauty of the end product, but just where a line goes in the top left corner, it's a whole lot easier. And if it gets more difficult, one of the things I also learned was to turn the picture you're trying to recreate upside down so that you're not focused on making it look like a face, you're just trying to put lines where they need to go because your brain doesn't recognize it quite as well. Uh, to put this in maybe better perspective, I think in the history of, of art, one of the things that destroyed it, I shouldn't say destroyed it, but changed it forever was the invention of the camera. It became, the camera was able to reproduce with near perfection what an artist took months or long hours to do in a moment. And so art changed forever because, well, what's my job now? If typically you were hired to do portraits for royalty or for families uh, that can now be done at the flash of a light bulb, what do you do? And so artists started to change their understanding of what their job was, and art really took a different route. 
we started to see things pop up like Impressionism. You might have heard of things like painters like Claude Monet or maybe Manet. Uh, if you, you know, the, the ballet dancers, he painted those. Um, there were other post-Impressionists like Vincent van Gogh or George Seurat. And let me explain who these people are, George Seurat in particular. George Seurat invented something called pointillism. So what he would do is he would make paintings that look lifelike, but he would use tiny dots on the canvas. And he would put primary colors next to each other. So he would put a blue spot and a yellow spot next to each other because when you stand back, it actually looks green. And so what he would do is this little thing, each little dot, I can't imagine how long it took him to paint anything. Um, what we call that today is a digital camera and they're called pixels. But he invented this sort of idea of painting where each little tiny point was just one small piece of the puzzle, but when you stepped back, you could see the whole thing. And you could even see colors that he didn't put on the canvas. The truth is, when you zoom in on it, it's really simple. It's just a bunch of dots. But when you back up, it appears more complicated than it is. Now, I want to put that up against another artist after the camera was invented called Pete Mondrian. You don't know who he is? This explanation will tell you. I bet you've seen prints or paintings or pictures of pieces of artwork that are just black lines in a grid. And then every one of those few grid points is filled in with red, yellow, or blue. Does that sound familiar? Those paintings were done by Pete Mondrian. And it, it looks like nothing when you're looking at it. It's just a few horizontal black lines, a few vertical black lines, and then within those grids that those lines create, the occasional red, yellow, and blue. And the reason for that is, as a trained artist, with the invention of the camera really making photorealistic art a lot easier to do with a light flash, he was trying to discover what the simplest aspects of art were. What is Art. It's really just lines and primary colors. And so he broke it down to its simplest concepts and he just drew or painted black lines in red, yellow, and blue squares. And he called one of them Broadway because it's actually a painting of part of the grid in New York City. But you'd never know that looking at it. it just looks like primary colors and black lines because he was making it simple. Now the point is with art is the basics of art and the simplest elements of art are that very simple, basic, easy to understand. But with those things, you can create a really beautiful picture that has a whole lot of information. But just because there's a lot of information doesn't mean that what elements make up all that information are very simple. And that's what we're talking about today. The gospel itself is simple. There's a lot of information in the text. There's a lot of information in the Bible that points us to the truth. And sometimes it can seem complicated and complex, and in a way it is. But ultimately, when you look at just the elements of what it is, the gospel itself is very simple. So before we jump into chapter 4, we're going to talk 
about a couple of verses at the very end of chapter 3 that we ended with last week. Because this is the thought that's expanded on in chapter 4. So in Romans 3, verses 27 and 28, Paul writes this. Where is boasting then? Is it excluded? By what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. What does Paul say? You are justified. You are saved by faith. That's it. All of the works, all of the good deeds, all of the things you think you could do. And remember, he's talking to a Jewish crowd, mostly. And he's pointing out to them, trying to give them an understanding of an argument they might have because of the religious past that they were attached to. And spending so much of their life being concerned with fulfilling the practices and the traditions of Judaism and the law as because they believed they were set apart as a nation, which they were, but being set apart as a nation didn't make them saved. And doing the deeds and the works of the law itself were not the thing that saved them. The law actually shows you that you need to be saved. It doesn't save you. And he's pointing that out. You are not saved by the works of the law. You are not saved by trying to outweigh your sin with good deeds. It doesn't work. Because outweigh, even if you could outweigh every sin you've ever had with good deeds, it doesn't erase the sin in your life. Now, I've said this before, and I'll say it again. No one goes to a judge and says, yes, I'm guilty of whatever, but you haven't seen how much I've given to charity. Because it's not, it doesn't absolve you from your guilt. It doesn't erase your guilt. And so Paul is stating you are saved not by your works, but by faith alone, by the grace of God. And so that's expanded on in Romans 4. If you have a question about what this is, especially from a Jewish perspective, you'd be thinking, no, we were given the law. We had the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin constantly pushing into our culture, helping us figure out how to follow the law even better. What do you mean we're not saved by the law? What do you mean our traditions and works of the law aren't the thing that save us? And Paul cuts to the heart of the matter by pointing out the ultimate patriarch, the person that they would have all looked up to. And in chapter 4, he tells us this. What then shall we say that Abraham, our father, has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. And so Paul points out Abraham, the man that every religious Jew would have looked up to. He is the founder of everything. He's the great patriarch. He's the guy that after the flood and after the Tower of Babel, God chose. And he said, you, Abraham, I'm going to pull you out of Ur of the Chaldees. And I'm going to make you a father of many nations. And I'm going to make you particularly a great nation. And through that nation, the entire world will be blessed. I'm going to go show you the land that I'm giving to your descendants. 
And Abraham marched and left home and marched towards what God had for him and his descendants. And he brought along his nephew. But at a certain point, his nephew and him couldn't sustain all of the blessing that God gave them together. There were too much livestock for them to graze the land on the traveling. So Lot separated from Abram. And Abraham kept traveling, but Lot got into trouble. Abraham's nephew. And he went and saved, saved Lot. And he saved him from marauders and people that were trying to destroy Lot. But even after that, Lot still separated from Abraham. But after that moment, we get Genesis 15. Now, it's important in that context, in that the only family member that Abraham had left him as we open up in Genesis 15. And in Genesis 15, God is making Abraham a promise. He tells Abraham that he's going to make him into a great nation. He's going to give him descendants. And Abram says in verse 2 through 6, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless? In the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Then Abram said, Look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. <clears throat> so the point is, even Abraham's nephew is gone. He has no one to hand off his inheritance to. This thing that God is promising him, he has no one to hand it to. And he says to God, the only person I can hand it off to is my servant, Eliezer. He's not even my descendant. So God, what are you asking of me? What can I do if you're promising me these things? And behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, This one, meaning Eliezer, shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward heaven and count the stars. If you are able to number them, he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And he believed in the Lord, and he, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. Now at this point, Abraham is an old man beyond the ability to really start ha keep having children. In particular, his wife is well beyond years for being able to have children. But God is speaking to Abraham and saying, no, Eliezer, your servant, is not going to be your descendant that you hand this inheritance to. You will have a miraculous descendant. You will have someone come from your loins come from Sarah, your wife, who will be the descendant that I bless the world through, that I will give, make into a great nation. And Abraham, even though the facts of the matter are impossible, he's too old, his wife is too old. He believes that God will fulfill his promise. And that is accounted to Abraham as righteousness. Why is that important? Well, the law didn't exist for a whole lot longer because Moses didn't come around for hundreds of years after Abraham. So the law didn't exist. So Abraham can't be counted as righteous because he fulfilled the law because the law doesn't even, hasn't even been written down yet. Not only that, Abraham has not yet been circumcised. He's not a part of the covenant of, the, of Judaism. That hasn't even been created yet. So why, why is Abraham considered righteous? 
because of the faith that he had in God even before the law was written on the tablets and even before the sign of the covenant in Judaism in circumcision Abraham was considered righteous now in Romans 4 we get another famous character that Paul wants to expound on to us and he says <clears throat> but to him who does not who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness, just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. And so now Paul is pointing to another famous Jew, David, King David. And he points out that David wrote that blessed is the man who God imputes righteousness on, who gives, sees as righteousness. And so he quotes one of David's Psalms, Psalms 32, and he quotes the first two verses in which David wrote, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin, to whom the Lord will not see or give an account of sin. <clears throat> He's pointing out that even after the law, someone, a great man in Jewish history, David, recognized that it was faith and that sin can be forgiven and covered, not because of the law. And then he goes back to talking about Abraham. He says, does this blessedness come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. So that is a really uncomfortable sentence to say from the podium here. I said circumcision a lot. But the point that Paul is making is that Abraham was considered righteous before circumcision was instituted, before the, law, the, the sign of the covenant. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe. Though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness may, might be imputed to them also, and the father of circumcision to those who not only are, are of the circumcision, but also who walk in the steps of the faith which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. So in Genesis 17, two chapters later, Abraham is 99 years old when he fulfills the sign of that covenant and becomes circumcised. And so long before that, Abraham was considered righteous before he gets the sign of the covenant with Israel. And so Paul is pointing out that the thing you're clinging to to try to make people seem righteous, an outward symbol, is not the thing that makes you righteous. It's a sign of the fact that you follow God, but the sign isn't what's inside of you. It's an outward symbol. To us, it would be like baptism. Now, if you stand up here and you share your testimony and you come and you step down into the water and you get baptized, that's a sign. It's a public sign, an outward sign that says, I have decided to follow Jesus, but it is not the thing that saves you. It is a sign that you have been saved, but it is not the thing that saves you. Circumcision was not the thing that saved you. Having an outward symbol as a Jew did not make you believe in God. 
It just meant that you had an outward sign. It's possible to be someone who gets baptized but isn't really changed inside the heart. It doesn't mean that you are saved, but it is a sign that maybe points to the fact that you are saved. And that's what Paul is saying. And so he's pointing out here that Abraham is the father of all who come to faith in God from Israel and outside of Israel because Abraham came to faith in God before circumcision. So even though there are special promises to Israel and there are special covenants and promises that God has for the nation of Israel, and while that points back to Abraham, so are the rest of the nations, those who come to faith in God, can be the sons of Abraham as well. Though they might not be Israel, they're still the sons of Abraham because you're able to come to faith in God outside of the law because circumcision was a part of the law. But Abraham came to faith in God outside of the law. So we are all able to come to Christ, but that does not negate what God has for Israel. I want to point that out because we are going to continue to go through the book of Romans. And there are some, and throughout history, there has been this idea of replacement theology, this thing where the church replaced Israel and the promises of God. That is not the case. If you believe that, you've skipped Romans 9 through 11, and we will get there. And even in this, Paul points out that there's a separation between the circumcised and the uncircumcised, between the children of Israel and the rest of the world. But that does not separate us from Abraham, but it does separate Israel and the church. More of that to come way down the road. But Abraham is 99 years old when he gets that sign. So a sign is not the thing that saves you. What saves you is faith. And it saved Abraham even before the law was written down. Verse 13, For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made no effect, because the law brings about wrath, for there is no law. For where there is no law, there is no transgression. Now, this is just interesting wisdom. Paul is pointing out that the law itself doesn't save you. What the law does is point out transgression. It shows you that you have sinned. It shows you that you need to be saved. So the law itself doesn't save you, but the law does point to the fact that you need to be saved. If there was no law, the law is still important, because if there was no law, then how do you point to sin? That's his point. Therefore, it is of faith, that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. And there's the summation, right? Faith, that it might be according to grace. God's grace is what saves you. And it saves those who are of the law, the Jews, and those who are not those who are of the faith of Abraham, those who came to faith outside of the law, the Gentiles. So both Jew and Gentile are welcomed into the gospel because the gospel saves by faith, not through works. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations in the presence of him who he believed, God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did, who contrary to hope, in hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations. 
according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but he was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform, and therefore it was accounted to him as righteousness. Now that's a lot of words. What did he really say? Let's break it down. Let's look at the simple elements like Pete Mondrian did with art. What is Paul saying? He points out that Abraham and Sarah were way too old to have a kid, but God promised them they would. And even though it was impossible for them to have a child to be their descendant, Abraham believed and it was considered righteousness for him. But what did it say about Sarah's womb? The deadness of Sarah's womb. She was beyond childbearing years. But out of death came Isaac, life. And so from this perspective, you see the gospel. Out of death, life, the resurrection of Jesus. His death on the cross, but his resurrection. The death of Sarah's womb, unable to bear a child. But Abraham believed before it happened. And because of his faith in God, life came out of Sarah's womb, Isaac. And interestingly, the most clear, one of the most clear pictures of Jesus on the cross is Abraham and Isaac. As Abraham in Genesis 22 is told to sacrifice Isaac on the peak of Mount Moriah, and he hikes up with him up the mountain, and Isaac carries the wood on his own back for his own sacrifice. And he asks Abraham up the way, where's the lamb? And Abraham said, God will provide one. When they get up there, God stops Abraham from sacrificing his son. And there's a ram in the thicket off in the distance, and they sacrifice the ram instead of Isaac. But it's not a lamb, it's a ram. So even though God provided in that moment, he didn't provide what Isaac asked for. And Abraham names that spot on the peak of Mount Moriah, God will provide. In Genesis 22, well, centuries, millennia later, Jesus marches from Pilate's to the peak of Mount Moriah, Calvary, or Golgotha carrying the cross, the wood, on his own back for his own sacrifice, just like Isaac. And he gets sacrificed on the exact same spot where Isaac was saved by the ram, by God. And that place was finally fulfilled, the promise that Abraham gave it. Where God, Abraham said, God will provide. And the lamb finally was sacrificed on that spot, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And out of Sarah's, the deadness of Sarah's womb came life in Isaac. Our sin, the wages of which are death, were paid for on the cross and buried. But the resurrection of Jesus brings life to those who believe in him. Verse 22, or 23, Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us it shall be imputed 
to us who believe in him, who raised up Jesus, our Lord, from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised up because of our justification. Jesus is the thing that justifies us, and our faith in him justifies us because Jesus was raised from the dead. Now, early on in chapter 1, Paul pointed out that all of this was written beforehand. So let's look at an example. Isaiah 53, verses 8 through 10. This is written about 700 years before the cross. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. Because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief when you make his soul an offering for sin. He shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. So 700 years before the crucifixion of Christ, it's written in Isaiah 53 that there's a man who would be cut off from the land of the living, who dies. Why would he die? To make his soul as an offering for sin. But what does it also say after that? That God will prolong his days. After he's dead, somehow God prolongs his days. And resurrection is predicted. And it is that person who dies for sin that is resurrected. That sounds simple. It is. The gospel is simple. There might be a lot of detail. There might be a lot of prophecy. There might be a lot of stories that parallel and picture. And there's a whole lot of context. And scripture itself is a beautifully knit, knit tapestry that paints the face of Jesus from Genesis to Revelation. It tells us that we're saved. It tells us how we're saved and how to do it. it. Tells us that we need to have faith in the Messiah, and it tells us what the Messiah will look like so that we don't mistake him when he comes. There's a lot of detail. There's a lot of complexity. The picture is beautiful. But when you step back and you say, what are the simple elements of it? What make up this picture? The elements are incredibly simple. John 3.16, for God so loved the world, not just Israel, the world, Jew and Gentile, that he gave his one and only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him, not believes that he died, not believes that he was resurrected, but believes in him, should not perish but have everlasting life. There's a lot of information. There's a lot to study. It's beautiful, and the picture is crazy. But when you look at the simplest elements of it, the gospel itself is very, very simple. You are saved by faith alone, not by works. Not because of what you did, but because of what Jesus did. And God predicted it a long time ago so that you wouldn't have an excuse when it was presented to you if you deny it. It's simple. 
Jesus is the Messiah. He is the only begotten Son of God. To be saved is not to just know what he did, but to have faith in him. A simple illustration I like to give for this is you can believe that a chair can hold your weight. But you haven't put any faith in it unless you sit down in it. You can know that Jesus died on the cross and was resurrected. But it doesn't save you until you put your faith in him and he bears the weight of your sin on the cross. Don't believe that, but believe in Jesus and you will be saved. The gospel is simple. Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you for the Apostle Paul. He has a brilliant mind, and he knows all of the details as a Pharisee and as a student of your word, even before he was saved. God, thank you for his wisdom to share with us the truth. And all of the arguments that we might make against it, he considers and he shows us the truth. Yeah, there's a lot of information, but the truth is simple. Believe in you and be saved. Faith saves. Faith in Jesus alone. God, help us to have saving faith in you. And also, help us share the gospel message, the simple gospel message to those who don't know you, to give them an opportunity to be saved. Help us share with the world how to put their faith in you. In Jesus' name, amen.